Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we will be looking at Cosmic, The Cosmic Poachers. The Cosmic Poachers was first published in Imagination in July 1953. Um, again, this was a very big year for Philip K. Dick where he published something like two dozen stories. So every month he's got a couple stories coming out in a variety of, of science fiction and fantasy magazines, um, of which there were many in the, in the 1950s. Um, you can currently find it in the We Can Remember It For You Wholesale um, volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, uh, or volume two, if, if you have the old, old, old edition. Okay, let, let's get right into the story, um, Cosmic Poachers. So we have our, our commander of a spaceship, uh, Captain Sure. So once again, we're given a ship on some kind of interplanetary um, mission. In this case, it's a police beat. Uh, they're they're gendarmes actually they're military police but whatever it's, they're basically policemen uh, going abroad they're in the Cirrus system doing their rounds basically they're doing their police beat the crew is tracking an Atharan freighter they're suspiciously armed they're traveling through Terran territory and the police are just kind of keeping an eye on them and checking them out uh, they don't know if they're pirates or spies or something else uh, so they observe the the ship's activities. The Adharans are an insectoid species and participate in some galactic trade organizations, but they're largely an unknown species to the Terrans. They, like their biology is obviously not known as we'll know by the end of the, the story. The Adharan ship lands on one of these barren planets, um, one of the barren planets in Terran space. This baffles Shur, who does not understand what poachers or pirates would want with this planet. Later, the Adharan ship lands on the next planet, they seem to be visiting each planet in the system. Shure decides to set down on the fourth planet of the Shure system and wait for them to come to them when the ship lands there. The fourth planet in the system has an atmosphere that was once home to another civilization. Shure explains his plan. Since they can't destroy the ship and risk destroying the stolen cargo, whatever it may be, and they don't necessarily want to antagonize this foreign power, the crew decides that they'll try to immobilize the Adherans with a vapor cloud, seize the ship, its crew, and its cargo. The plan goes well and the ship is immobilized and will remain immobile until the outside surface can be sprayed clean of the vapor. Shure attempts to communicate with the Adharan commander, but is unable to. The Gendarmeres are escorted into the ship and blasted away into the cargo hold. And there they see thousands of jewels. They assume that the jewels were once owned by the Adharans and were originally stolen by the, the now dead civilization of Cirrus city builders. In any case, everything on the on those planets is now the property of Terra, due to some kind of intergalactic law. The Adherans attempt to steal, or just to um, seal the, the police in the cargo room, but they escape it by blowing a hole into the side of the ship. After a short battle, the Terran crew defeats the Adherans, and after the stolen jewels are collected and the Adherans confined, they wait for a cargo ship to come and secure the, the jewels, the, this big cargo, this big steel. Sometime later, the jewels are put in a cargo ship, and they'll likely become luxury goods when brought to Earth. One mystery remains. Why were the Adharans able to collect these jewels so quickly when the Terrans found so little of value on most of the planets in the Sierra system? I mean, the, the humans hadn't found anything valuable on these, but these Adharans could come in and quickly collect this stuff. So what, were they, what did they know that the Terrans were missing? They seemed to know just exactly where they were, and the Adharans are then sent on their way. 
The Adharan commander, meanwhile, back on his ship, informs his superiors that his crew was not only able to unload half of the eggs before they were stopped by Terrans, um, or so, sorry, he was able to inform his commander that they were only to unload. They were only unable to unload half of the eggs before they were stopped by Terrans. However, this is not a major loss because Terra is a really good environment for the eggs, and they'll hatch soon. Plus, the mother can easily lay a new batch of eggs. So the twist we get at the end is that these were simply just the Adharan's eggs, and they were laying these eggs throughout the the solar system. You know how insects do; they'll go around and they'll lay their eggs in various places. Um, it, the story right away kind of reminds us of Colony in that you have an alien species who are using deception to get people to bring their species to Earth. In this case, by looking at it like gems, the eggs are attractive to the human police who, who see them as booty and want to bring them back to Earth. Okay, analysis. Um, we got... Is, this is one of the Philip K. Dick stories that... We can call kind of the twist ending, the, the one-note science fiction story. These, these are common. If you read a lot of science fiction stories, a lot kind of are in this way, where they just have one little idea, and it's kind of often presented as a twist ending. You know, it's the kind of thing you'd have in a Outer Limits episode, right? So it, it doesn't have the big ideas that you find in some of stories like Variable Man. And that's why I think Variable Man is such an important early story, because it's the first long work that really gets into ideas and really doesn't rely so much. It has a twist ending of sorts, but it doesn't really rely on that. It's really an idea heavy story that really gets to Dick's philosophy about several things. Um, this story is just, you know, an idea that, you know, and it's not that impressive of a story. Um, it's probably one of those that you could miss, but there's maybe a few things we can say about it. Um, one thing to say is that we actually have kind of a hive mind civilization. Um, you know, they, the title makes us think we're going to have a story about poachers. In fact, we get a story about a hive-minded civilization preparing locations for eggs. And it introduces, and it, it introduces some interesting questions about use and ownership. Um, it works almost as well as if the Adharans were poachers. Terra has acquired the Cirrus system in some diplomatic negotiation, maybe a peace treaty, maybe a war. However, Terra got it. They're not really using them. They, they've been deemed kind of useless, so they're just kind of out there in space. Terra scouted the planet, but the only thing of value is the remnants of an old city-building civilization. And that's basically what they, they think that the Adharans were stealing from. But Terra just decides, you know, it can't support human life. There's no evidence of settlement, no mining, really. So Terra owns Cirrus on paper alone. It's like a, a speculator buying apartments in a city and not renting them out. You know, yeah, he owns it, but he's not using it. And then do, do you lose your right to own something if you don't use it, especially if someone who needs it, in this case, the Adharans need it for their young, a place to lay their eggs, do they have a right to use it? The military defends the planet, investing resources into defending a planet they're not using, which seems a bit irrational, but certainly militaries on Earth do this kind of thing all the time. The Adharans are essentially squatters on unused land. Sure, they're indifferent, uh, they're indifferent that their eggs will, will hatch on Terra and cause problems for them. Um, you know, what, what do they care what happens to the Terrans? It's not really their species and it doesn't really affect them. Yes, some eggs are going to go to Earth. Adharans are going to be hatched there. What's going to happen to there? I don't know. Are they just going to people figure out these gems are eggs and with weird creatures coming out and then kill them? These don't seem to be like xenomorphs and they're going to like annihilate Earth. But 
but maybe there's that suggestion. The Adharans are not malevolent, right? They're, they didn't want their eggs stolen and taken to Earth, really. So in Colony, you have a more malevolent creature here. You know, they didn't want their eggs stolen. They wanted them to be hatched on these planets. Um, you know, it's not their fault their cargo was seized. And is there anything wrong with what the Adharans are really doing here? They are expanding, but they're not intentionally conquering. Terrans are the ones with the true imperial perspective. Um, quote, but we have to find out where they're loading. Whatever it is, it belongs to us. End quote. This idea that anything in the system, anything in Earth space belongs to Earth is the imperial philosophy. You know, this is really how state, the capitalist class, looks at their own property, right? And we have plenty of things that are kind of free. I mean, we're... We're post-scarcity in so many things. If we start to settle space, we'd be post-scarcity for land, certainly. I mean, we're, we're not at that stage yet, but we would be, you know, and kind of like in early American history where you had the West was sort of, quote unquote, wide open. You know, there were Indians there, but, you know, this kind of open Western frontier. You know, you're post-scarcity, so you could give land away for free. Well, you know, if we ever do get into space, we'll be in that situation again. Uh, you know, we're post-scarcity with a lot of things. Information is the big one, where information is basically free. Media is essentially free these days. So, um, you know, what's the purpose of defending things that are essentially free and endless? Now, this story has some similarities with Expendable in showing the resilience of insects over humans. Um, but I don't think we should read the adherents here as a threat. It, they might provide a challenge for Terra. Um, but it's not clear that they are really very good fighters. So what's the threat going to be when they go to Earth? Earth seems well secured. At best, I, at most, I think we're going to get some frightened rich people who buy these gems and, and end up freaked out. But we'll see. We don't really know about, enough about the adherents to say one way or another if they are a threat. We know something about their nature, though. They're collective. They're, they're hive-minded. Quote, complex social structure, very rigid patterns, organic state grouping, end quote. The Terrans misinterpret this organic state. Yes, it may have a rigid social structure. The mother, for instance, seems to be on top of things. But in practice, they're quite flexible. They're able to deal with catastrophic derailment of their plan with ease. And the Terran social structure is probably just as rigid, but lacks the foundation and mutual aid. Um, now, I urge you, if you're interested in this question of mutual aid, to read Peter Kropopkin's book. It's about 100 years old now, but he wrote this book called Mutual Aid, where he really challenged some evolutionary thinkers who said that it's kind of survival of the fittest, right? That's the, the strongest to survive. And Kropopkin's response to it is, if you actually look at nature, from insects all the way up to primates and apes, it's actually the most cooperative that do the best. The species that are the most enduring are like insects, and they're often hive minded, you know, they live in colonies, they cooperate, they self-sacrifice, and they do the best. And this more individualist species tend to be a little bit more fragile. And if you look at the endangered species today, many of the like the more solitary animals, tigers, whatnot, are, are actually doing quite poorly. Now, I don't know the origin of scientific invention on evolving alien species from reptiles or amphibians or insects or birds. Um, Obviously, if other planets are going to evolve species based on reptiles, amphibians, insects, or birds, non-mammals, they're going to need those species, those um, 
families yeah i guess whatever are they, no they're not families they're no they are they're king it's kingdoms animal kingdom and then it's families i think are the the different um subsets but anyways we they would need to evolve those first and why would you get birds insects amphibians reptiles on other planets with other climates right there's a, again we get this trap that's in a lot of science fiction of a sort of teleological evolution that aliens and other planets are going to look like us or the species on the planet are going to look like us so even if you say well they're they're insects right they're not at all like humans well it, they would still be earthy right they're still kind of terran in characteristics so even if evolution to intelligence was possible for these forms of life, why would evolution on these planets necessarily resemble life on Earth? That's my question. Are there good reasons to think, for instance, and I don't know this, maybe a biologist can tell me, are there good reasons to think that something like insects will develop on a planet capable of sustaining life? Now here I want to give some credit to Dick. Uh, while this is still an early story, he's still confined to some of these science fiction conventions and his later work he'll become much more creative in imagining alien life um, for instance you're gonna have sentient slime molds later on and you know yeah early on he's he's just kind of building off of common cliches in science fiction but he is going to make that turn and get to really interesting alien life forms in the future the amoebas the kind of flying jellyfish it's hard to kind of imagine a completely alien species that doesn't resemble life on this planet you know and and I don't know, maybe there are good reasons for thinking advanced complex life will have certain characteristics, right? Like eyes close to the brain. Maybe that's just an evolutionary advantage that will be pretty much the same most places, right? So eyes will be on the head near the brain. Uh, maybe having skulls is just going to be pretty common. I don't know. Maybe biologists or people who have thought about this can, can let me know what they think. All right. Thanks for listening. Um, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Um.